Amen, amen. Last week, I had the privilege of being here and listening as Pastor Mitch took us to Revelation. And as he went into Revelation, he took us to the church at Ephesus. In this church that, for all external measures, had it all right. Everything was going really well. They got it, as he said, but they didn't have it. There was something that the Spirit came and pressed on and said, You have all of these other things, but I have to say this. You have departed. You have lost the thing of first importance. You remember what that was. You've lost your first what? Love. And it's that that I want to just spend some more time right in that space this morning thinking about God's incredible love for us and our love back to God. And so I want to circle and just stay right in that space of God's love for us and our love back to God. And I wanted to start the conversation by going to Luke chapter 15. So go to Luke chapter 15. You might already be there. If you are in Luke chapter 15... We're going to focus this morning, we sang a beautiful song, Kevin and the band did a wonderful job, we didn't even talk about this before, but he picked this song, and it is, it's the story of the prodigal son's return, so it's a famous story, you may know it well, it's the story of a lost son, what you may not know is that there are two other parables that are attached to this, and so the teaching on the lost son actually finds itself at home in a series of three stories about lost and found, lost and found. And so this morning we've got time. I'm going to make sure that I cut my stuff short so that we can let this go long. I want to read the whole thing, Luke chapter 15, because it's important whenever we talk about lost and found, we can immediately come up with some imagination or assumption in our mind and we go, well, this is a story of lost and found, lost and found, lost and found. And many of us in our place of lostness were found by these texts. And so we go, well, these are for them whoever the them might be. And what we find right away in Luke chapter 15 is that the them, the audience, may be a surprise to us. It wasn't the lost that maybe we think about in our mind. Jesus was addressing this series of lost and found, lost and found, lost and found to a particular group of people. And so we'll look at that and we'll get into it. Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start at verse 1. Here, here is the lost and found series. It says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable, which one of you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, would not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go look for the one that is lost until he finds it. Then when he has found it, he places it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Returning home, he calls together all his friends and neighbors, telling them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous people who have no need to repent. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search thoroughly until she finds it? Then when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Let's pause right there before we get into the lost son. You see already that that interplay, the contrast between the two postures, right? And who's the audience? Who's Jesus talking to? You guys can fire back. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to us. He's talking to the church. 
this, pot, this group of people who's been watching Jesus and they've been watching the way that Jesus behaves and he's not behaving like a religious person in their mind should be being or should be behaving. Jesus is found with sinners, found with tax collectors, and it's not the first time they've said it. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, Jesus does a few things. He calls the disciples and then he heals a couple people. He heals a leper and a paralytic He calls together his disciples, and then he finds himself at a tax collector's booth, and he invites this man to follow him, and he ends up going directly to his house and having a party. And it's in the context of Jesus having a party with tax collectors and sinners. Them. They. Those. Those people. It's when Jesus is with that group that this charge is first leveled. And the religious people say, that's not a religious person. That's not a person rightly related to God because no upstanding person who loves God would ever be found with them. This man eats with them and celebrates with them. It's that same charge at the beginning of Luke 15. This same thing is still with Jesus, persistent as Jesus is teaching. And it says, who came around? It was all the hungry and the thirsty. It was all the those and thems and theys. That's who was there in the audience. And Jesus was gladly welcoming them, saying, come on. And he was pouring into, loving them. And as he loved them, it was that group of religious people who came around again and said, look, there he is again, with them, with those, with they. And Jesus said, listen. And already he's starting to do something really powerful that I don't know if we always catch it because we always kind of locate ourselves, which is natural, at the center of the story. And we always go, well, which one of this group am I? And really what Jesus is doing is he's pulling back the curtain and he's showing them God's identity. He's revealing the character of God to these people. That's all Jesus is doing with these three parables. Have you ever stayed at a good hotel? Some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, What's, what do you call a good hotel? <laughs> Let's see. It was good at the time. Yeah. Here's how I measure it. Good hotels have multiple curtains, right? There's like layers upon layers upon layers of drapes. And when you open the, there's like the first drape that's the heavy drape that shuts out everything. It's like the blackout drape. And then you open that drape and behind that drape, what's there? there's another drape. And so then you pull that drape and you're like, good grief, there's another drape in between that drape and the window. That Jesus is doing it three times with these people. He's pulling the first one back. And to these people who claim to know God, they say, we can tell you who God is. Jesus says, you might be able to tell me who God is, but I'm going to show you who he is. I'm going to put right in front of you a story that shows you the identity of God. And so he pulls it back the first time and he says, do you know a shepherd? Is there any shepherd who wouldn't leave his 99 sheep to go get the one? This is who God is. That's his identity. He'll chase after the lost one and then he'll not only find it, but he'll put it on his shoulders. He'll carry it home. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's God who's doing the work. God will carry us and shepherd us home and then he will feast as he brings us home. He pulls back that first curtain. He says, that's who it is. That's who God is. Then he pulls back at the second one and he says, who of you who claims to know who God is would be maybe surprised to find out that God would actually humble himself like a woman who would get down on the floor 
in this posture that you're embarrassed for me this morning going, why is that guy on the floor? You know what's on the floor? It's that COVID area. You don't get down and touch the floor. Jesus says, who wouldn't get down on the floor and turn over everything and go after that one lost coin? He's saying, this is your God. This is his identity. This is the God you claim to know and love. And then he pulls back this third drape. And it's here where it gets interesting, because if you've ever done this, if you've ever stood in front of a beautiful window and you pull back the drapes and there's that still opaque drape and you see, and all of a sudden you not only see the light outside, but you can start to see a reflection of who? You can get a glimpse of maybe who you are. And this is what we're going to get into today, that you've heard us say this a lot. The more we look to him, the more we look what? Like him. This is an identity story. And this third level, it gets right to it as as Jesus pulls back this third drape and it starts to get really opaque and you start to see the brilliance of God's love. All of a sudden, we get a glimpse of our true identity. And it's stunning on both levels. Let's keep going. I'm in 1511. It says this. Then Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all he had and left on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Then after he spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and worked for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He was working to eat. He was longing to eat the carbob pods the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have food enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off from home, his father saw him and his heart went out to him. And he ran and hugged his son and kissed him. Then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the slaves and asked, what is happening? The slave replied, your brother is returned, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and appealed to him, but he answered his father, look, These many years I have worked like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me. Everything that I have belongs to me. Everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead. And is alive. He was lost and is found. 
Lots of you have heard the story, right? We've the magnificent, magnificent story. And such a magnificent story that I think we asked to have this. But if you can put that picture of Rembrandt or Rembrandt's picture up, Rembrandt painted this painting. And this story throughout history, throughout the ages, has had such impact on people that it arrests us and causes us to just look at the beauty of the Father and the Son. And we'll get back to that in a second. I just want that to linger up there. But you see the magnificence. And so many of you have heard this. You've taught this. Just the incredible extravagant love of the Father. And again, Jesus is peeling back identity. Who would not, as a shepherd, go after the one? Who would not humble himself and take on the nature of the lowly and go search for that one last coin? Who would not love like this, running out to meet a son who said, I'm dead to you, and a, son, a father who says, you've never been dead to me, and he runs out to him. Who would not wrap their arms around this person that every other person in that culture would be pushed back in disgust? The ultimate in disgust reaction. Someone who's been with pigs in the field, with prostitutes, all manner of defilement. We stay back from that kind of uncleanness, and yet this father runs in and wraps the arms around that. Just stunning. It's as if now the shades are pulled all the way open and Jesus is saying, this is who your God is. So as you come with condemnation, teachers of the law, those who claim to know God, as you come and you point fingers at me for eating and being with and celebrating with tax collectors, I want to show you that you don't know the first thing about God. This is your God. This is who I am. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, compassionate Forgiving generation upon generation. It's as if Jesus is saying, you know this, right? It's in your scriptures. It's in your texts. You've written it on your foreheads. Put it on your doorposts. This is what you've been talking about for generation to generation. Celebrating this. And yet you won't let them celebrate this with me. This is the conversation Jesus is having. It's an identity conversation. God's re- Jesus is revealing the Father. And we know that Jesus said this, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. The incredible gift that God has given us is that he did not stay distant and let us try to imagine what he might be and fill in the blanks. The incredible gift of God is that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen him full of grace and full of truth. This is the brilliance of the incarnation. This is the brilliance of what we're about to celebrate in Christmas is that there is no debate. If there was any doubt about the character of God, he's left there no doubt. He's left nothing unsaid. The word became flesh and he finished it when he took on flesh and revealed the true nature of God who is fill in the blank. One word, love. God is love. And love is this beautiful thing that we attach all sorts of definitions to. But in the scriptures we say, for God so loved the world that he, what's the word that comes next? Gave. From the very beginning we see the nature of God's love. Which is a love and a power that does not hold to itself, but it gives away. It gave away power, it gave away authority to steward creation, it gave away authority to create, it gave away the very image, the imago Dei, it gave away everything it gave up, even his only begotten son, love gives. He says, this is who your God is, this is who I am. 
And I want you not to be rebuked and driven off by that. But he's saying to his audience, I want you to come in and celebrate like the older brother. I want you to have the same joy that is in heaven. Knowing this God who is running after and searching after and carrying you. Who made you in his image. And now we're getting to it. Because if God is, fill in the blank, love, and love gives, it's a self-giving, it's an outpouring. If God is love and love is outpouring and we're made in the image of God, we are imago Dei, then we are, fill in the blank, love. This whole idea of look to him, look like him, come face to face with the incredible love of God, be brought low by the stunning reaction of a holy God who is in himself perfect and yet doesn't drive us away, but makes provision for us to be perfect like he is perfect. Praise God. And it's when we come face to face with that love of God that God does not say the point was for you to worship me at a distance. That was never the idea. He says, I'm taking you back. This is a new creation conversation. Because in the very beginning, I created you in my image. I, perfect love, created you to reflect an image or evidence that perfect love in the world. You were to make visible the invisible nature of God. Do you believe that about you and I? It makes Rembrandt, sorry, Rembrandt, shoddy. It makes art like that common, normal. I'm saying you, each of you, makes Rembrandt's highest work. I think it's his highest work. Other people would disagree. It makes Rembrandt's highest work normal. Walk by it in a thrift shop. It's okay. But I see you. Imago Dei. The ability for the breath of God to animate bones and attach tendons and flesh and to once again fill the world with an image of self-giving and self-emptying love that seeks not to hold power but to give it away. As if there's enough and enough and enough and there's an endless supply of it. And so there's no fear in love. I can just give it away. This is the stunning thing that I hope right now is provoking some sort of chill in the room. It is cold, by the way, at Redeemer City. I noticed that last week. I was like, those people freeze COVID in that place. This is brilliant. This is identity. This is Jesus pulling back curtain one, curtain two, curtain three. And what he's trying to do is say to these Pharisees, look a little bit longer, 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 because I want you to see. And the longer you stare at that glass now, that beautiful thing that you once saw with a veil. Now I'm pulling that veil back and I'm showing you. And he says, eventually you're going to sit there long enough that it's going to surprise you and you're going to go... I see him, but I also see who? Me. Reflected in his image. Me reflecting his image. And see, this is what neither son understood this. And this is what's so powerfully important for us this morning, because the religious audience of the day, he was teaching to people who were very godly people, very religious, very devout people, and they just simply didn't understand it. And we can't blame them. We can't make thin or or nasty characters out of these people because we don't get it either. It's hard. It's a difficult truth. It's why Jesus is teaching in parables. And it's why we rely not just on words, but words with the power of the Spirit. 
It's why Paul was praying for the church in Ephesus, the one that had lost its first love. He says, I pray that you would have this power to comprehend, to somehow comprehend and to know at an experiential level this love of God that I'm describing to you and then be filled to the fullness of it. That was Paul's exact prayer in Ephesians 3. You can go find it. He was praying that for Ephesus. Listen, as I share this with you, the, what did the younger son say twice? Twice upon his return. And sometimes we think about him coming to the end of himself as the moment that he was in the gutter. But that's actually not the end of himself. The end of himself can be found right here. As the false self gives way to the true self, the new creation and the old creation. But twice on his journey home, he says this. He says, I'm not worthy to be your what? Son. He says it the first time. And this is a man who's come to his senses, right? He's, he's taken the inheritance. We could say, if we were in a theology class, we could say he's taken the Imago Dei for himself, the extravagant love of God, the self-giving God. You could say he took that for himself and he went about his own way. Very creation fall narrative. And we could say that he found himself building the false self and that he became imprisoned. He said, I'm a slave. In fact, he had to go sell himself to someone to work for him so that he could eat with the pigs. And so narrative one is son becomes slave. Son becomes slave. This is old Exodus narrative. Jesus is weaving these things together. So son becomes slave, finds himself in slavery, comes to understand that he, was in, he is born into slavery here. And he doesn't say, let me go be a son. He says, I'm not worthy of that. So I'm going to go from slave to what? Slave. And go from slave to slave. But I'd rather be your slave than yours. Because I can't see your ma- what's under the mask, so I don't know if you're nice or mean. But I don't want to be your slave, okay? So he says, I don't want to be a slave here. I'd rather be a slave there. Well, this finds particular resonance with the older brother who says what? I've been doing what for years? I've been... says it right there in the NET translation. He says, I've been slaving faithfully. But he says, I've been slaving away. Whew. We have two sons who have no idea who they are. We have two sons who have no idea who they are. One has taken this gift that his father gave him and he's gone and he's become a slave over here to the world. And we have another son who's living in his father's house and yet he's acting like a slave. And the father says to both of them, throws an arm around both of them and says, sons, come here. I have a deeper story I want you to understand. And this morning, this is what I want to share with us this morning, is we look to him and we stand in front of that thing. The veil has been pulled back. One, two, three. And we're just beholding. We're starting to. Pastor Mitch is doing it every Sunday faithfully, just holding up Christ. We're starting to see more and more of who he is. And it's as we see more of who he is that we start to understand who he's created us to be. But I will tell you, there is a lot of religious people. There are a lot of religious people. There are, I've pastored for 16 years. And many of us, myself included, for a long time, have been slaves in our father's house. 
we have considered ourselves unworthy to be in the Father's house. And so we've said, just let me be a slave. I will do for you whatever you ask me to do because you are good and I am not. Religion flourishes in that kind of an ecosystem. The older brother was able to say, I've been faithful. I've been doing faithfully. And yet God said, there's something deeper I want you to understand, that you are my child. And now this is, this is where Luke 15 kind of becomes baptized, immersed in the rest of the council of Scripture. And we understand that what Jesus has done is he's come to make all things new. And that image of God that is in you, the childness, the him as your father and you as his child, son, daughter, that which has been given up and now yoked with slavery and all sorts of a false identity built around it, Jesus is saying to both sides of the house, you need to become poor in spirit like this guy. And once you're able to find yourself collapsed in the arms of the Father's love, it's from that space that all of that false self stuff will start to melt away. All that slave identity stuff will start to melt away. Do you believe that God is love? If somebody asked me if I believe that, I would answer in the affirmative, yes. If they said, on what grounds, what evidence? How do we know that God is love? Scripture says this is how we know what love is. That you would what? Lay your life down. Jesus left nothing undone. The final counsel was written down when the word became flesh. And he says, I want you to know God is love. You were made in my image. The beginning of the story is that you were made to look just like me. And yet that image has been broken and shattered and debased and yoked in slavery. And now the invitation is to come and find rest. And twice the son wants to find that rest. And he comes and he says, I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm not worthy to be your son. And if you'll notice, the father doesn't even engage the conversation. I love this. I love this so much. Because when we've truly been in that place where there is an honest humility and repentance, but it's still lacking understanding. Listen to this. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I'm in 19. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and his heart went out to him. And he ran and hugged his son and kissed him. Then his son said to him the second time, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Look at this. But the father said not to him. Didn't even respond. I'm not your son. He said to the slaves, said to the workers, hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill. Let us eat and celebrate because this, and you should highlight this, circle it, underline it, this, what? Son of mine. He wasn't even, I mean, he was listening to his son, but he wasn't even listening to that false narrative. I'm just going to say it in this room. Probably there's still some work to be done for us. I know there is because there is still some of me that says, I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm cool. I love your house. I love you. I understand you're gracious. I understand that you'll invite me back in. You'll even throw your arms around me. But, 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 but I know I'm not worthy to be your son. This morning, I want you to know that God is showing these religious people. He's saying that when you come with that, I hear you. But I'm not hearing you. I'm speaking over you, my incredible love. And I'm telling you, as you tell me who you're not, I'm telling you who you are. You're my son. You were born, made by and for God. First John says it this way. If you want to join me in first John chapter three. First John chapter three, verse one says this. See what sort of love the father has given to us. Other translations say has lavished on us that we should be called God's children. And indeed we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. Listen to this. We know that whenever it is revealed, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. What First John is pointing to is that there is a moment where this work will be so completed. That there will be no distortion in the perfect love of God and what is coming and pouring out of us. And so the promise is this. From where we are today, children of God. And I want there to be no doubt in our minds. If there's still doubt and wrestling, go talk to each other. Come talk to me. Say, I'm still struggling. I'm still wrestling. That's a fair place. I was there. Lots of us are there. Jesus is talking to religious people who were there. And he's saying, but I want you to experience something deeper. You are a child of God and you are made to look just like me. I'm going to use a big word. And the big word is destiny. Your destiny is to look just like him. Perfect love. That's what's coming. First John says, little by little, from now until then, as we're born again, and the image of God is given back to us. Born again. This is why Jesus said you must be born again. Because it's not you apart from me as slave. It's you now as son. Because I've given you back that original imago Dei. By grace through faith in Christ. He says, so now if you are a child of God, you are walking towards your destiny, which is to look more and more like me. Second Corinthians says it this way. Second Corinthians three is talking almost about the drape analogy in verse 17. It says, now the the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is present, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces reflecting the glory of the Lord, listen to this, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord who is spirit. Amen. Amen. 
If you don't have that highlighted in your Bible, I want you to highlight Second Corinthians 3, 17, 18. And in that verse 18, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. This is what the church needs to understand. We do not need a church full of slaves doing religious things for God. I will just come straight out and say it. That was never the point. That was not even what God is doing in the world. For God so loved the world that he created, that he intended it to bear his image. This other thing, slaves doing for God, is a complete miss. And what God said is, I've come to fulfill what you're trying to do, but it doesn't get to the real thing. And what is needed in the world today is the image-bearing nature of God, the love of God being transformed from greater, with greater and greater increasing glory into his image and likeness. That means that tomorrow, our hunger and thirst to look just like our Father in heaven is so white hot that on Tuesday, there would be a greater evidencing of love from our lives. And what did love do? Love so loved the world that he what? Gave. So there would be a greater and greater self-giving and pouring out of this incredible love of God that's been poured in that it would grow on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday until someday, and only God knows the day, we're standing before him face to face and we don't see now through a veil. We don't see through drapes. We don't even see through a word and spirit. We see face to face. And in that moment, you will look at yourself and say, I look just like you. I had to quote this song when I spent time, I spent a couple of years thinking about that idea. And there's this incredible song, The Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon. And there's this haunting lyric that says, one day, Dad, I'm going to look just like you. Someday I'm going to look just like you. If you remember nothing else from today, I want you to know this. God made you in his image and he is love. He made you to evidence perfect love and all manner of slavery, whether it be worldly or religious, has built on top of that all sorts of other armor. And what the spirit of God is trying to do is set us free and say where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And what you need to understand is in your mother's womb, I knit you together perfectly with the exact DNA that you've got. With every bit of what I've given you, I've given you that and I've just meant to not have you comprehend Ephesians, and not just know Ephesians, but I've been praying that you would be filled in that vessel with the perfect love of God, and that you would come face to face with it in and through my life. Praise God. This is so beautiful to me again that it's like evening and morning the first day. Can you imagine if you were given a first seat to creation, a front row seat, and you got to watch that? How did he do it? I'm telling you through his word and his spirit, not by power, not by might, he's making all things new. And it's if all of us this morning are sitting there on the edge of the ocean watching this beautiful image of God appear little by little, little by little, little by little. Is there a hunger and thirst for that? Do we believe God? This is the work, he says, that we would believe. My prayer for you this morning is that you would simply believe this, that God is love. I pray that you would believe that you are his child, that you were made by him and for him. 
that there would not be a shadow of a doubt in your mind. He does not want a slave over here or a slave over there. He knows that that's the posture, but he says it's beyond that. Come on. I want you to experience what I made you for. Do you believe he's loved? Do you believe that you're his child? And the third thing I want us to pray this morning is, do we believe that it's possible? Do we believe that it's possible to be transformed with ever-increasing glory into his image and likeness? Do you believe it's possible that today there could be a part... Can you put that Rembrandt picture back up? Do you believe that it's possible today for a little bit of the old nature to be swallowed up in the love of God? That not by power, not by might, but by a surrender the perfect love of God would evidence himself just a little bit more in and through your life. Do you believe that's possible? My prayer is that we would be able to say, not I'll do it, but I believe that you are love. I've seen it. I believe that I am your child because I've heard it. It's not what I hear in my own head. It's what you've spoken over me, and so I'm going to choose to believe it. And I'm going to lean in and take you at your word that you're going to make me look just like you. And I want to say yes to that. And that's what amen is. It's just our yes. And so I wonder, this is not a selfish like, hey, would you give me an amen? We're not going to ask for that. But I want our lives, when we walk out that door, I pray that you would say amen. And that your amen would be, yes, Lord, make me look just like you. The surest way to be true to that coordinates, to that true north for the new creation, is for adoration to be the way that we lead into transformation. And so don't fix your eyes on the words I said today. Don't fix your eyes on anything but the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus, because as the drapes are opened, it's when you look to him and love him that you will begin to look more and more like him. Amen, amen.